Hey, Obsassinacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. And today I am here to talk to you about Season 3, Episode 2, Surrender. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, pretty much the gamut by now. If there is anywhere that you listen to podcasts that you cannot find the Sassanac Files, just shoot me a little email to thesassanacfiles at gmail.com and I will see what I can do. Also, if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram and like and follow the Sassanac Files there for all sorts of fun Outlander-related stuff. Right now, I am working on the best episode of Season 4 bracket, which is where you can have your input. I made a bracket with all of the episodes. We're currently on round one. I think we have two matchups left. So hopefully sometime next week, we will be moving into round two, which is exciting. Also, I want to take a moment to ask a wee favor of all of you guys. If you like what you're listening to with the Sassanac Files, I would love it if you could Go to your favorite listening platforms and leave a little rating or review for me and for others who are interested in the Sassanac Files. It would be much appreciated. Alrighty, with all of that out of the way, let's talk about 302, Surrender. This episode was written by Anne Kenny and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. Loving the ladies on the front lines of this stuff. It's really great. That's one thing that I appreciate so much about Outlander is that they go out of their way to make sure that they're giving credence to equality and they have just as many female as male directors and writers. So it's really great. So if you missed last week's podcast, I want to just kind of give a refresher. Since Jamie and Claire are currently separated in the show, we're going to break it down and I'm going to talk about Jamie's storyline. Claire's storyline, how their storylines intersect, and the parallels of their stories that the writers have put in place for us to kind of get that Jamie-Claire connection, even though they're not on screen together. So first up is Jamie's storyline, which is kind of the heavy hitting stuff of this episode. So Jamie... Like, poor, poor Jamie. This episode picks up in 1752 Scotland. It has been six years since the Jacobite Rebellion, and Jamie has not fared well, guys. (laughs) He's in pretty rough shape. In fact, the first time that we actually see him, he's hardly recognizable, right? He's got this really long hair, long beard. He's wearing this hat that comes down like you can barely see his eyes. He's been living in a cave for the better part of six years. It's just not the Jamie that we know and love, right? And when Sam Hewen was interviewed about this, he said that that's one of the things that he enjoyed most about these first few episodes of season three is Jamie assumes a new identity every episode, which is something to pay attention to. So for the first episode, he was Red Jamie, right? He was the Jacobite traitor. And that's who he was, who his identity was. So now he's assumed the identity of the Dunbonnet which funnily enough was actually a real person. And Diana Gabaldon does a lot of research with her books. No surprise there. I think that's something that everybody knows. And she found the Dunbonnet in her research in Scotland post-Jacobite Rebellion. 
and thought that would be cool to incorporate into her story. What she didn't know, and it is super freaky, is that the Dunbonnet's actual name was James Fraser. It's like total kismet, right? Like, how does that even happen? I don't know. But anyway, the story of the Dunbonnet is pretty much what we see. So uh, he was a laird of an estate and he was taking refuge in a cave after the Jacobite Rebellion. And one of the people living on his estate was rolling a cask of ale to him and was actually tracked down by the Redcoats. And in trying to aid the Dunbonnet, had his hand chopped off. So this is all actually based on a true story. Now, obviously, our characters are not real people. So that part has been embellished a little bit. But it's just so fascinating for me to see how this is like art imitating life and not even intentionally. It just blows my mind. The Dunbonnet in Scots literally means like brown bonnet, a bonnet being a hat, one of those like Jamie wears in this episode. So the story goes that the man that is hiding in the woods, he's called the Dunbonnet because he wears this brown hat to conceal his bright red hair. So when the red coat captain or officer, whatever we want to call him, comes to Lollybrock looking for the Dunbonnet, we really get this feeling that this is a regular occurrence these days. I mean, it's been six years since Culloden. And I mean, they're still dealing with this on a daily basis. The Redcoats have taken up residence in Scotland, and they are doing what they see fit to keep the Scots under control. Ian is being arrested again, even though he claims to have no clue what is going on with the Dunbonnet or Red Jamie, denying all involvement with his brother-in-law. And Jenny even tells them, you know, we haven't seen my brother since he left for the rebellion six years ago. And obviously the Redcoat doesn't believe her, but it's just the fact that, like, they're, oh, we'll just arrest Ian for the hell of it. That's so frustrating. Of course, we know that Jamie and Ian are lying to the Redcoats. Of course, they know where Jamie is, especially given where the last episode ended, that we have Jamie being pulled up to Lollybrock in a cart full of hay, mortally wounded, and then it picks up six years later. So obviously, Jamie has had some connection with Ian and Jenny post Culloden. What we don't count on is what we get. Jamie has retreated in on himself. He's mute, essentially. He doesn't speak. He's feral. That's how a lot of people refer to him. He's feral Jamie, the Dunbonnet. His grief for Claire has driven him into himself. He doesn't even feel the need for human interaction, honestly. And in these first few scenes... It's like Jenny says, you can why I can lie to the British and feel at peace. It's because James Fraser has not been here in a long, long time. Jamie is not the person that he was. And Jenny sees that. It grieves Jenny so much to see what her brother has been reduced to. And we get this great conversation after Jenny has had the baby and Jamie is in the bedroom with her. You know, she says, how long has it been since you've lain with a woman, Jamie? 
And he's like, don't, you know, that's what I love so much. Laura Donnelly and Sam Hewen have done such a great job creating this brother-sister relationship. And I think it stems from the fact that they've known each other for a really, really long time. They went to drama school together. But also, there's just this quality. I do it. Everybody with a little brother does it. Where they're like, you know, you need to get your shit together. (laughs) Seeing what your sibling has been reduced to through their own tragedy is so awful But you don't want to see them wallow in it. You want to see them happy. And that's what Jenny said. She's like, I only want happiness for you. It's God's sorrow that you never had the chance to bring a child into this world. I just want you to have a bit of happiness. And Jamie's like, I'm not marrying. Forget it. Just drop it, Janet. (laughs) You know, it's really terrible because six years has passed on this side of the timeline. It's 1752. It's been six years of misery and mourning for Jamie. Whereas when you look at Claire's side of the timeline, yes, it has been a little bit of time, but it's really only been a year, 18 months at the most of her separation from Jamie. So I do think that there's a clear difference in their grief level. It's not that Claire doesn't mourn Jamie, but she has their child to throw herself into. And Jamie's left with what he feels is nothing. While we know that's not true, and he comes to realize that by the end of the episode, it's still really painful to watch. One thing that I really loved, but also felt was kind of skimmed over a little bit was Jamie's infatuation with Jenny's pregnancy and like being there for the birth and taking care of her because Ian wasn't there. That was something that was in the book. I mean, we see it when Jamie comes to tally the ledgers and Jenny's screeching and wailing like she's hardcore in labor. And he's really worried about it. And he starts towards the door and Mary McNabb is like, the babe decided to come early, you know, don't worry about it. But he really is. And that stems from Claire being pregnant when she went back through the stones. Like he feels this craving, this yearning for young children, like he forms an attachment. And I think that that is where the beginning of Jamie and young Ian's relationship really starts. We see it right here in this episode. He just bonds with this baby right out of the gate, has this really traumatic experience where the redcoats are looking for him and he's hiding in this little room and it's really intense, right? And what an experience to have with your nephew. Like, of course, Jamie is immediately going to feel protective over this tiny little infant and that just grows into a almost fatherly love over the course of the series. It's really beautiful. Of course, I won't get into it much now because... We have plenty of time to talk about it later, but just fun to see that little bond start to form in this episode when Ian is literally an hour old. It's so cute. But really, when we're talking about children, the thing that I think had the most impact in this episode for Jamie's storyline is Fergus. Fergus, at this point, is in the show, he's a bit younger because they used Roman Brew instead of recasting the role of Fergus twice in season three, which makes sense. But 
1752, we're talking Fergus is legitimately probably like 14, 15 years old, which I guess Roman could pull off. But Fergus is a little bit confused in this episode. When he was younger and he was with Jamie and Claire, he had his fire fueled by these two. He idolized Jamie and Claire and he still feels that way toward Jamie. Like Jamie is his dad, you know, in a lot of ways. He looks up to him and Fergus, just like Jenny, sees what Jamie has been reduced to. He's really struggling with that, mainly because these are very formative years for Fergus and he wants Jamie to be the man that he knows he can be. That's the Jamie that Fergus loves. And we see how much Jamie has changed when Fergus brings the gun to the cave and says, I want you to teach me how to shoot. And Jamie just says, no more fighting. Put it back where you found it. This is not the Jamie that Fergus knows. Jamie is defeated in this episode. And that's something that we really start to see change after Fergus gets his hand cut off. Which, sidestep on that, because this Corporal McGregor, they cast him really well. He's such an asshole. And one thing that I'm kind of a little heartsick about, and this is going to sound so weird, I'm a little upset about is that they cut the scene where Jamie actually kills Corporal McGregor after he cuts Fergus's hand off. I feel like we needed that vengeance for some reason. I just like, I'm like, I miss that. That, oh, well, they're just gonna cut off his hand and get away with it and we'll never see anything of them again. Which I mean, in retrospect, is more realistic, I suppose. But Man, yeah, in the deleted scenes, Jamie drowns McGregor in the creek when he comes looking for Jamie. And yeah, justice done. But yeah, we we didn't get that in the show, which does make me a little sad. And the computer graphics on this whole thing with Fergus getting his hand chopped off. I mean, obviously, you can tell it's computer graphics. But overall, I thought they did it really well. The computer graphics in this season period really like compared to what we end up getting in season four, I felt was really great. But anyway, back to it. We really start to see this change in Jamie when Fergus is injured. It kind of wakes him up a lot to see that. And it scares the hell out of him because he's kind of retreated into himself, like I said, and doesn't really give the illusion that he cares about very much. He's going through the motions. He's taking care of his family and providing for them as best he can. But at the same time, he's very emotionally removed from everything. And when Fergus almost dies, Jamie is forced to take a step back and look at the situation because Fergus is a son to Jamie and He never really thought about losing him until he was forced to think about it. And that scared the hell out of him. And when he collapsed in Jenny's arms, just sobbing, that made me feel so bad, like so terrible. And I know there's a lot of controversy about that moment, primarily because it took away from a scene later in the season. 
But when you take a step back from that and you look just at this episode, it really does take on a whole new meaning because Jamie has been so closed off and now he just, the dam breaks. Like he gets pushed over an emotional cliff. Fergus is the last thing that Jamie had of Claire, essentially. That's, they raised Fergus together for two or three years and... Fergus was influenced by Claire and is her son in a lot of ways. And so for Jamie to think about losing the last vestige of the life that he and Claire once had, and not just that, but Jamie loves Fergus as a son. And so he thought that he had nothing to fight for. And then if he loses Fergus, he really has nothing. I mean, that's how he's feeling. But Honestly, I think it just kind of opened his eyes to, yes, you've been in grief. You've been mourning your soulmate. You lost her and you're never going to get her back. But hey, there are people here that love you and that are worth fighting for. So that scene when Jamie goes up and talks to Fergus and says, you remind me that I have something worth fighting for. And Fergus just looks at him and says, there you are, me lord. I love that. It's like Fergus has just been waiting. He's been biding his time. He's been waiting for something to wake Jamie up, to bring him back. Because that fight is what defines Jamie. It has always defined Jamie. And for six years, Jamie hasn't had that. He's barely had a will to keep going, honestly. So when Fergus says, there you are, me lord, I love that. It's so great. From here on out, this the scene where Jamie collapsed in front of the fire, you really see him budding from this chrysalis, right? He was an ugly little caterpillar, and he's like emerging back into the world again and becoming at least an echo of the Jamie that we knew before Culloden. And it's happening physically and mentally. He's starting to speak more. He shaves. He gets his hair cut. He's thinking like the wheels are turning. And granted, what he's thinking is not the best. But he's he's thinking about what's best for his family instead of just going into survival mode where he's going day to day. He's thinking ahead. And what he wants is for Jenny and Ian to turn him in for the reward money. Because that will see that the estate is taken care of, that Fergus is taken care of, and the Redcoats will leave Jenny and Ian and the family alone because they're going to be viewed as loyalists now. They turned in the traitor Red Jamie. They got the reward money. There's no need for the Redcoats to keep coming around, harassing them, damaging property, etc. So it's a heartbreaking situation, but at the same time, It is what's best. And Jamie can finally see that. He can step outside of his own grief to see what's best for everyone else. So that's really the arc of this episode, right? Is being able to move on to the next phase of your life. And for Jamie, it does take a bit longer than it does for Claire. But there's a difference. And I think this was in the official guide to Outlander. It said there's a difference between 
losing your spouse, believing them to be dead and trying to pick up your life and move forward versus knowing that they're out there somewhere, but they're just always out of reach. You can never get to them, but they're out there living their life. And that's painful. Like that, I believe wholeheartedly is the difference between Jamie's storyline and Claire's storyline. Why Jamie held on to his grief for so long is because he knew that Claire was out there raising their child, being married and intimate with another man. And Claire is like, well, Jamie's gone. Jamie's dead. Yes, I loved him dearly as his wife, but he's gone and I have to pick up and keep going. So these are the opposing views that result in the difference of quality of life that we're getting between the two, I believe. One thing that really always gets me in this episode is the final scene between Jamie and Jenny, because Jenny does not agree with what Jamie is doing. She does not feel that giving him up to the Redcoats is going to solve anything. And in fact, she's pretty sure it's going to get him hung. And nothing is worth that price to her. So even though Jamie and Ian are both telling her, look, this is the best solution we have, she's not agreeing with it. So in that final scene, when Jamie comes into the courtyard and it's the whole ruse with the redcoats, but you can see there's this whole subtext to that scene that is so, so gut-wrenching. The look that Jamie gives Jenny when he's like, how could you do this? My own sister. And Jenny is crying and she's like, you gave me no choice, brother, and I'll never forgive you. Never. Like, she's so upset that he forced her into this. He didn't give her a choice. And he knows that he's hurting her at the same time, but doesn't see an alternative that he can live with. This is the juxtaposition of these two great Fraser siblings. It's so wonderful. The writing in it was fabulous that we get this whole pretense that the Redcoats are believing, but underneath you can see the emotions bubbling between these two siblings that are saying goodbye. Jamie could potentially die and Jenny and Jamie both know that. Like, it's so intense, and I absolutely love it. It gives me goosebumps every time I watch it, and I really love that final shot when you see the Dunbonnet laying in the mud, and the cart is being pulled away with Jamie in it, and I really felt that that signaled the book closing on the Dunbonnet identity and the book opening on Jamie's next chapter, which is where he's going to be known as McDoo. That's his new identity in the next episode. I absolutely love the next episode. I'm so excited to talk to you guys about it, but we're staying with it. I'm keeping on track. So I really loved the symbolism there with the Dunbonnet being left behind in the mud at Lollybrock. That pretty much closes out Jamie's storyline. There are a couple of other big things, but I'm going to talk about that in the parallels section. So Moving on to Claire's storyline, Claire and Frank ended at a very interesting place in the battle joined. There was this hopeful note that just kind of got tossed in the garbage when that nurse came in and was like, oh, where'd your baby get the red hair? Good Lord. But 
They both kind of vowed in that moment that this would be a new beginning for them, that nothing else mattered, and they would try to make their marriage work. So this episode is that for them. And Jennifer Getzinger, whenever she was interviewed about this episode, said that she really felt like this episode was the last gasp for Frank and Claire's relationship. It was the final push. And at the end of this episode, they're broken. They're not going to rebound from this. It's a new normal for them. But it was really interesting to see the evolution of this relationship because the first time we see Claire in this episode, she's having a dream slash vision slash memory of a night with Jamie and remembering the sensations and the pleasures of having him as a lover. And she turns and sees Frank in the bed next to her. And I really feel for both Claire and Frank in this episode, to be quite honest. There was no winning for either of them. And it sucks. Claire yearns for physical connection. That is her love language, so to speak. And she hasn't had that. She wants that desperately, that contact, that intimacy. And whenever we're watching her in the living room with Brianna, you really see this happiness for her. Like Brianna gives her a sort of peace and contentment, I think, which is another key difference between her, where she's at mentally and where Jamie is at mentally in this episode Because Claire got Brianna out of it. She lives for her daughter and finds comfort in raising her. It's like she says later on in season three, she said, I was happy raising Brianna with Frank. It wasn't that she was happy with Frank. She was happy raising Brianna with him. And that is a key difference. I don't know. You really see Claire and Frank bond over this child. All the cards on the table, like, let's not mince words about it. The only reason that Frank stayed with Claire was because of Brianna. (laughs) Uh, He wanted a child, and he knew that he wasn't going to get a child without that. He was sterile. So Brianna was the daughter that he never thought he was going to have, and he throws himself into that relationship with Gusto. You can totally tell just in the scene where Frank is holding Brie and talking to her. Like, she's daddy's little girl, and she has him twisted around her little finger, heart and soul. It's really interesting to see that Claire and Frank both love this little baby so much that it has strengthened their own relationship. And there's this hint of optimism for most of the episode for their storyline, that they're going to be able to get over the hump. They're going to be able to make it work. It kind of all just unravels at that scene by the fire. It starts out so well, like all of their heartbreaking scenes does, like just so typical, kind of lighthearted joking about what talents do you think he was referring to? And, you know, well, it was obviously her encyclopedic knowledge of the works of Shakespeare. (laughs) You know, like, them just being Frank and Claire. They've known each other for a long time at this point, and they're old friends, if nothing else. 
the tragic part of this entire thing is that Claire is the love of Frank's life. He loves her more than words can express. But Jamie was the love of Claire's life. So it's just this constant, ever-loving reminder of what they both lost, essentially. Because when Claire went through the stones, Frank lost Claire. When Claire came back through the stones, Claire lost Jamie. And by extension, Frank still lost Claire. Like, he had her physically in body, but in soul, she was gone. She's a shell of who she was, to him at least. And I'm sure she feels that way too. When they have the scene by the fire, like, Claire is so physical. She wants that contact. And she needs that intimacy. And it's been, like, probably a year between a year and 18 months of not having sex. And that, (laughs) I'm sure it's driving her up a wall, honestly. I mean, the girl's got needs. And Frank, for that matter, has been that long, if not longer, without intimacy. I mean, they are more than ready and willing to try to make this work. And they have one successful try at it. But the idea of the physical contact, the human connection, sex, that is one of the biggest parallels of this storyline, of this arc over the course of this episode. Because Jamie and Claire are both intimate with someone else for the first time since they've lost each other. And that is a big deal. Like, emotionally, that is a huge deal. Because... Let's not forget, Claire was the first person that Jamie had ever been with. The only person Jamie had ever been with. That's really tragic that he lost the one and only person he'd ever been with. And to try to wrap his head around being with someone else, it's just not something he was prepared to do ever. And Claire, it's not something that she wanted to do ever. But she realizes that if she's going to make this marriage work with Frank... It's something that has to be done. Like, you can't have a sexless marriage and make it successful. Like, it's just Diana Gabaldon has said that multiple times. She's like, part of the reason Jamie and Claire's marriage is successful as it is, is because they have a great love life. They have a great sexual chemistry. And she said, name one couple that's been married for 30 plus years that does not have a good sex life. (laughs) She's very upfront about it. And that is one of the shortcomings of Frank and Claire. Like, they're absolutely miserable from this point on. But the interesting, I hate to keep using the word juxtaposition, but honestly, like, when you sit the two events side by side, you have Frank and Claire and you have Jamie and Mary. The huge difference between these two events is that when Mary is with Jamie, there are no pretenses. She's saying, look, I know how it was with you and your wife. It's not in my mind to make you feel that you've betrayed that. I love this line, guys. It's not in my mind to make you feel that you've betrayed that. What I want is something different, something less, mayhap, but something we both need. It's so true. Like, Jamie has been isolated from everything for so long. He needs that. He's a social person. 
like human beings in general are social animals and Jamie is the the icing on the cake, right? Like he thrives off of interaction and he's been closed off from the world for this entire time. So Mary's not under any delusion about what this is. She knows that there's no emotional attachment involved. He can't give her love and that is okay. She realizes that. What she wants is to connect with another human being. And so in this scene between them, it's like Jamie's just crying. He's crying and he's crying. And, you know, he's saying, I haven't done this in a very long time. It's been six years, guys. And she knows too. I mean, she lost her husband. She knows. And she looks at him and she says, you can look at me if you want, because he's got his eyes closed. And he looks at her and says, you're a bonnie lass, but it's just something I do. When he says you're a bonnie lass, like, I really feel like it's, he's saying more than just like, you really are beautiful. Like, he's saying that you're more than just physically beautiful. Like, I appreciate you almost is kind of how it came across. And I really, really loved that exchange between them. So then on the other end of it, you've got Frank and Claire's interaction. And there is all the strings on this one. Frank thinks that Claire is finally overcoming her scruples. And he expects a level of, like, he expects Claire to be all in. Like, it's the complete opposite of what Mary expected of Jamie. He expects Jamie to just become a footnote and for everything to go back to the way it was, which is just not something that will ever happen. And I'm like, I get it, Frank. I really do. But, buddy, you got to accept the fact that her husband died and she loved him. She's never forgetting him. There's never going to be a day on this earth where she doesn't think about him. And especially when she's having sex with someone, you know, like she really had this fire chemistry with him. I mean, I know that she probably has not shared all of this with Frank. (laughs) That would be super awkward. But I just like that's the tragic part of this for me is that it's like Frank said, after their abortive attempt at a fireside quickie. (laughs) It's just he says, you know, Claire, when I'm with you, I'm with you, but you're with him. And it's really sad to think about because Claire is all Frank wants and all Claire wants is Jamie. And so by the end of this episode, it's like Jennifer Getzinger said, it's done. There's no coming back from it. They're sleeping in separate beds. Like this was the last hope for that relationship. And from this point on, It's just trying to salvage what little remnants of happiness they can have. And I love the line. There was an interview with Katrina, probably several interviews, because I feel like this was something that was really important to her. She was talking about how in these first few episodes of season three, it was really important for her and Tobias to... uh, create these happy moments with Frank and Claire. It was really important to them to not have it all be misery. Because if we're being perfectly honest, no one's going to stick through 20 years of misery in a marriage. Like, especially Claire. Like, Claire would 
go. She would not stay in something if it was that awful. So there had to be these moments of happiness between these two. So that's what they wanted. They wanted to make it realistic. They wanted to make it tragic that these two couldn't work things out. And I really feel like they did a great job of that, especially in this episode, because we do see those glimpses of happiness or contentment, especially when they're with their daughter. Overall, when everything's said and done, I think the biggest parallel of this entire episode was Jamie and Claire finally making the best of the hand that they've been dealt. They're both deciding to move forward, to take their first step into their new life, whatever that may be. Jamie is going to prison because that's what's best for his family. Claire is going to med school because it's her dream. It's how she's going to find a purpose in life beyond her daughter because her marriage is up in flames. She knows that healing people brings her joy. It brings her happiness. So she's embracing her new life. And that's really great. So I felt that Outlander is really great about their titles of their episodes. They always have a double meaning. And the same is true for Diana Gabaldon's chapter titles. But Surrender, especially when you look at the battle joined, Surrender, All Debts Paid, of lost things. Those are four episode titles that really encompass everything within those episodes. So when we look at the episode title, Surrender, it's not just about Jamie's literal surrender to the Redcoats. I mean, yes, that is a big plot point in this episode, but it's about Jamie and Claire leaning into their new lives, surrendering to the circumstances that they are in, surrendering to what is best. Stop fighting it. Like, stop fighting against everything you've been fighting against. Accept it for what it is. And I think by the end of this episode, that is one thing that we can say for both of those storylines. At the end of this episode, when Claire is walking through the park and she hears that guy playing the bagpipes. I always get emotional with that because no matter where these two are or what they are doing, despite the 200 years between them, it's the little things that remind them of each other. And while they are choosing to step forward into their new lives, they will always hold a little piece of each other in themselves. And we really see that, especially with Jamie. His grief is so prolonged. Claire kind of shuts the door on it, but it's always still there. And so it's very beautiful to watch the end because this episode, it's so, especially the end is so haunting with those bagpipes playing, but it's also a, all right, we're moving forward type thing. So I love that. Absolutely love it. As always, I want to take a moment to talk about the performance of the episode, which was a couple of different people. I talk, talk, talk always about how phenomenal Sam and Katrina are. I wanted to go a different route. So I'm giving a nod to two women for this episode. 
The first is Laura Donnelly, because I felt that there were some really powerful moments with her and Sam where she just knocked it out of the park, especially that final scene in the courtyard at Lollybrock where she says, I'll never forgive you for this, brother. Never. That was so amazing. She did a great job. And then the other young woman that I'm giving this nod to is Emma Campbell-Jones. She is the woman who plays Mary McNabb. And I felt like she's this understated but completely honorable woman. And she's got some steel in her. Like, honestly, she does remind me of Claire a little bit. And I can see why Jamie was so drawn to her. Like, not necessarily, like, sexually or um, extremely attracted to her. Like, there's no way she could ever replace Claire. But I think that he does see glimpses of her, especially when she makes the impulsive decision to say, here's the gun. It was mine. Do what you will with me. Like, that's something that Claire would have done. And I think that Jamie appreciates who she is as a person. So I think that Emma did a fantastic job making Mary a really sympathetic person. It would be so easy for an audience to view Mary as this slut who just wants to sleep with Jamie. Like, it's a very fine line to walk. But I felt like she did a really good job in even having her own concealed pain. It was really interesting to see that uh, facet of this woman. So I thought Emma did a great job. To close out this episode, I want to talk about the quote of the episode, which was actually an entire scene because it was a super short one between Ian and Jamie after Jamie visits Fergus and they're sitting by the fire drinking whiskey. And Ian says, my leg, it's not there as anyone can plainly see. And yet it pains me terrible sometimes. It even wakes me up at night. Fergus, the lad, he'll likely feel the same with his hand. Feeling a pain in a part of you that's lost. And that's just a hand. Claire was your heart. I love it. Like, Jamie literally lost a part of himself when Claire left. And it's heartbreaking to watch Jamie struggle through it. And to know that, if anything, Ian understands. Ian understands what he's going through, and I think that helps Jamie a lot to know that, for Ian to have said that to him. It really helps him in ease ease his mind a little bit, I think, to finally have words to put to what he's feeling. Like, that was, it was really great. So I love that quote. Okay, so I think that's all I have to say on the episode. But as always, I opened it up to the masses for you guys to have a chance for your thoughts to be heard. So at this time, I would like to open it up for listener comments. My first comment was from I have my own path to follow on Instagram. They say, above all, I would like to say that for me, Claire didn't use Frank. I know the show can give this sensation to some people, but I believe that Claire is actually struggling very much. Let's remember that she's not even allowed to properly mourn Jamie. I believe she genuinely tried to make her marriage with Frank work again. Beside, as a reader, I must say that Frank uses Claire too. Because in the book, at this point, Claire wasn't even aware that Frank couldn't have children of his own. This situation is more of a mutual convenience for the good of Brie. 
Baby can have a real father, caring for her both financially and emotionally. Of course, Claire doesn't have to work and raise a child on her own, and Frank can finally have a child. It's somehow a win-win situation, although Claire nor Frank can be 100% happy or even satisfied. I made the comment whenever I post these that um, I always ask a couple of questions. And one of my questions this time was, do you feel that Claire used Frank? And I think that got misconstrued as using him emotionally or um, physically, but really what I meant was sexually. And to be quite honest, she did. She needed her needs met. And It wasn't Frank that she wanted. It was sex that she wanted. So that was what my question was referring to. No, I don't think that Claire used him emotionally. And I don't think that she used him just for what he could give her, like financial stability and all of that. Honestly, Claire being Claire, she would have done what she needed to do if Frank would have told her, nope, sorry, I can't do this. Like you're on your own. Claire would have survived. She's a survivor. What I meant was sexually, what did you guys think of her using him? So I agree with you. Um, I have my own path to follow. I don't think that he was used in that way. And that it I don't think that it was intentional. Like, yes, it can come across as she was only with him for the things that he could give her. But in truth, I think she was doing the best that she could. And trying, she was really trying to get past her feelings for Jamie and make a life with Frank. So I do 100% agree with you on that. So in that vein, a lot of these comments are referring to that. So I just wanted to kind of clear up that explanation first before I got into a lot of these. Carolyn Watson on Facebook says, It was Frank's choice to take her back knowing that she was pregnant with someone else's child. He realized that it could be his only chance to be a father. She gave him an opportunity that he wouldn't have had otherwise, and yes, he helped her by giving her a way to have a stable environment to raise Brianna. You do what you have to do for your kids, no matter what it takes. So Carolyn is essentially in the same vein that I am, that, like, Claire's doing what she had to do, and there's no shame in that. Like, absolutely none. And either way, I think she would have been fine. Yeah, staying with Frank makes sense. Uh, Suzetta Gibson Maine says... I don't think she was intentionally using him. She was heartbroken and in mourning, but was forbidden from working through it because of his jealousy. That scene where she said, you have to look pretty to meet the boss, was about more than that on-campus cocktail party. Claire spent her whole life without an anchor or safe harbor and was trying to make the best of a situation she really didn't want to be in. I thought she lost her loyalty to Frank after she realized that saving his existence cost her faith. And he burned her clothes and told her she had to forget all about Jamie. Like, that's possible? So I didn't even think about that. Like, yeah, I agree with you, Suzetta. Um, There probably is a little bit of a resentment there. But honestly, I think it's mostly self-blame as far as losing faith. Because she realizes in the end that there probably wasn't a whole lot she could have done to change one thing or the other. And in the end, she just ended up causing more problems for herself so but that's a very interesting angle as far as frank somehow believing that it was possible for claire to let go of jamie and just be with him i've said it before but i do think that's kind of naive on his part to just think that 
oh, well, he's dead, so let's move on. He clearly had no idea the depth of their relationship if he thought it was going to be that easy. Okay, I think that about wraps it up for this week, guys. I don't have any new Outlander news or anything like that. I was hoping we were going to get some posts when filming started this past week, but it's kind of been radio silence, which I take as good news. Like, no news is good news. Haven't heard it's been postponed or anything like that. I have heard from a couple of sources that with the coronavirus in Scotland, there is a new lockdown, but that the filming industry has not been affected by it as long as they follow industry regulations. So um, fingers crossed that they were able to start filming this past week and that we will get some news soon. Men and Kilts premieres on Valentine's Day and they released the new trailer. So if you have not seen it, head over to the Sassanac Files Facebook page where I shared it so you can take a look-see. It does look really good. I'm super excited about it. Finally have something slightly Outlander related because it's been a long time, guys. But yeah, I think that about wraps it up for this week. Uh, Make sure to join me next week where I am going to be discussing Season 3, Episode 3, All Debts Paid. And this one, guys, makes my top 10 episodes of the series. I absolutely love this one. We get Lord John Gray, David Barry's rendition of him, and can't wait to talk about it with you guys. So yeah, until next week, stay safe out there and make sure to follow the Sassanac Files for all of your Outlander needs. Also, if you guys have any comments or questions about this episode or any previous episode of the Sassanac Files, make sure to send me an email to thesassanacfiles at gmail.com or reach out to me on social media. Don't miss my listener thread for next week. It will be going up probably Monday or Tuesday, so make sure to get your thoughts out there on either Instagram or Facebook for a chance to have your thoughts heard on the next episode of The Sassanac Files. Until then, you guys have a great week, be safe, and I will chat at you later. Bye!